up here. This. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, thank you again for your grace to us and giving us another week, another day to serve you and to live and enjoy the benefits of this world that you've created for us, even though it's been marred by sin, we enjoy, we still enjoy many good gifts at your hand, and we're thankful for all that you do for us, all that you give us. Thankful we live in a country like this where we have so many privileges and uh, so many opportunities, and we have uh, so much uh, prosperity. We have a very good life compared to uh, many folks in other places in the world and other times. So help us, Lord, to be thankful for what we have. And thank you most of all for the spiritual blessing of knowing you, knowing Christ, the Holy Spirit, through the salvation you've provided through the death of your son. Thankful for this time that we can uh, come together and study your word, this particular book of the inspired scripture, the word of God. And we're Pray that you'll use it in our lives to sanctify us and to help us as we seek to serve you in the days ahead. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we are looking at our quiz from last time for this time. Uh, number one, <clears throat> Paul wrote the severe letter after his painful visit to Corinth. Paul wrote the severe letter after his painful visit to Corinth. And that, that's true. This covers this stuff we've been talking about for several weeks, how that when Paul was in Ephesus, after his first visit to Corinth, he established a church in 1 Corinthians, I mean, in Acts chapter 18, established the church in Acts 18, um, about the year... 50 to 52, he was there. And then on his second missionary journey, he comes to Ephesus, spends three years there, and that's where he writes these letters, 1 Corinthians, writes a letter actually before 1 Corinthians, mentioned in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, then 1 Corinthians. And then he makes a visit over to Corinth that's not recorded in the book of Acts. And uh, he actually told the Corinthians that his plan was to come to uh, Corinth, see them, go to Macedonia, and then come back to uh, Corinth and see them again. But what happened, he went over to uh, Corinth and things didn't go well. He had a guy who, or a group who opposed him, and uh, there was, uh, it wasn't a good visit, and the Corinthians didn't come to his defense, Paul's defense. His authority was questioned. And so he returns immediately to Ephesus, and there he writes this letter, rebuking, really, the church for their behavior, necessary rebuke, <clears throat> carried by Titus. And um, so this painful visit caused him to write this severe letter, which, again, is not in the canon. He wrote that from Ephesus. Number two, the Corinthians declined to punish the individual who wronged Paul during his painful visit. They declined to punish the individual who wronged Paul during his painful visit. Well, that's false. They did, uh, they did uh, punish the wrongdoer. Um, you know, and Paul 
talks about that, talks about in chapter two, verses five through 11, forgiveness for this individual. So they did punish him and Paul forgives him and Paul urges forgiveness. And as since he apparently has repented, he should be restored then to the church, uh, to fellowship with the church. Three, Paul insists that the Corinthians remove the offender from the church. Well, that's false, of course, here, this offender I'm talking about. Now, we did talk about 1 Corinthians. When Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, there was a person in 1 Corinthians 5 who had committed incest, and the Corinthians hadn't done anything about that. They had not exercised discipline. And Paul says there, yeah, you've got to exercise discipline and remove this person from the church. He's not repented, living in sin. You've got, to, you've, you've got to remove him from the church. But not this person. Paul, Paul when, he gets the, when he gets the report back from Titus, he, he writes the severe letter, and then he gets the report. Titus sends, brings that letter. But then when Paul meets Titus in Macedonia, he, uh, he uh, gets a good report. And so the, the person has apparently has uh, apparently, as far as you know, uh, repented. And so Paul says, restore this person. Forder, withhold forgiveness can play into the hands of Satan. Of course, that's true. Paul mentions that in this case. We have to be you know, careful here. Sometimes it's not easy to forgive. But if a person repents, truly repents, and seeks forgiveness, then we have to do that. Paul mentions the fact that Satan was at work in the original sin, and you don't want to compound that by adding a failure in, in our part to, re, to restore a person, to forgive a person who has repented. Five, Paul met Titus in Troas after Titus returned from Corinth. Not, not exactly true. It's not true. If you remember our discussion there, Paul is in Ephesus. He's sent uh, Titus to Corinth with the severe letter and uh, he grows anxious about that. And so he goes to uh, Troas. He moves north, goes to the city of Troas, and there he tries, he waits. He's waiting for, uh, he's waiting for uh, Titus. He thinks he might join him in Troas. And um, he uh, says that he pro- preached the gospel there, but he was... Uh, had no peace of mind, he says in 2.13, because he didn't find Titus. So he goes on to Macedonia, probably Philippi. That's where he would be the natural place to go first, uh, as he did on his first missionary, second missionary journey <clears throat> originally. So uh, when he evangelized uh, Philippi. So he probably went over to Philippi, and there he meets uh, Titus. Uh, he meets Titus in Macedonia, not in Troas. He didn't find him in Troas. And so he pushed on to um, Macedonia. Um, so let's see where we are here in our notes. We're ready to talk about the character of Paul's ministry. We're seeing that Chapter 1, verse 12 through 7, 16 is generally a defense of, against the criticism 
the Corinthians have about to Paul and his ministry, some of the criticisms. He's defending that, explaining what he's been doing, you know, how he's acted, why he's done what he's done. And so he starts off by defending his conduct. And um, he deals, first of all, with their complaints, obscure letters, travel plans, domineering. Then he talks about forgiveness for their offender. And then he has this revised travel plan uh, that he suggests that uh, he is going to uh, adopt. Uh, now, as we, as I said before, Paul, it seems like is running sort of rabbit trails. He's, he's defending himself, but he, um, he, uh, in that defense, he mentioned something and that leads him down a, a, a different avenue, different discussion. So a lot of topics come up here that don't exactly relate to a defense of Paul. And they're long, long discussions about things. So we'll see how that works out. But we're ultimately still under this general theme of Paul's defense. And we're still continuing that because we're looking at the character of Paul's ministry in 2.14 through 6.10. But here he does run, I keep saying rabbit trails, he, he, he gets off on subjects that come up in, in his defense of his ministry. He begins by saying that his defense was, I say here, was it a sincere, Paul's ministry was a sincere proclamation of the knowledge of Christ. This is uh, verse 214. Paul says, but thanks be to God who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. At verse 14, I say, Paul suddenly shifts from, the anxi from anxiety to thanksgiving. Paul likens the irresistible advance of the gospel. See, he's talking about in verse 12, you know, the preaching the gospel and the open door and so forth. And so he's, you know, he said he, he said goodbye to these people and went on to Macedonia, but thanks be to God, you know, there is this, um, in spite of, you know, temporary frustrations like he's going through, he talks about this irresistible advance of the gospel. Jesus is carrying out his work. He's building his church in spite of these, you know, temporary setbacks and things that seem to uh, hinder the progress. And he likens this, I say, um, the irresistible advance uh, to a Roman triumphus, to a Roman triumph. Uh, I'm just using the Latin word here, triumphus. <laughs> Can you go, yeah. just turn the volume down, it's on the bottom left of the radio there. I got a radio on there and it's, uh, it's, uh, I forgot to cut it off there. Um, can you find it? It's the bottom left uh, button, audio button. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Sorry about that. And, uh, so this is a Roman triumph. That's the, 
that's the uh, image or the figure that Paul is discussing or using here in which the victorious general would lead in triumphal procession the prisoners of war. Now, this verse is one, a very difficult verse to understand how Paul sees this imagery of the triumph. There can be little doubt that Paul is talking about a Roman triumph. What is that? Well, Romans gave celebration parades, triumphs, to generals. I mean, Rome was always at war. Their whole nation was built on war, annexing land, you know, defeating people. That's how they built their empires, all built on war and so forth. Um, and so there were just, there were over 300 of these triumphs. These are celebrations of a general's victory in war. And he would come back to Rome and there would be a great, you know, uh, parade and he would be in a chariot with a crown over his head and he would lead behind him uh, slaves, often of people who were captured from this particular people that he conquered. He'd bring back uh, prizes that he, uh, you, know, you know, from the conquered lands and so forth and so forth. And the question is, as the NIV says here, how do we fit into this triumph? Well, the word, you know, basically means, it seems fairly clear that it means to lead this, to lead as slaves. It says here, God who leads us as captives, lead us as captives. Now, translators don't know exactly what to do with that. And they're not uh, sure about that. I can't find that. Okay, there it is. Um, they're not sure exactly what to do. If you notice that NIV 2011 says, God who leads us as captives. Now the old NIV said, thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession. It doesn't tell exactly how he's leading us. Are we there as soldiers who are marching with the, the general, the Roman soldiers? Are we, is he using us, is he using the figure that you know, we're like Roman soldiers and Christ is like the general. We're leading, we're in this triumph. The ESV, you know, also says Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. But exactly how does he lead us? It doesn't really say. The, the NIV 2011 has taken the bold step of saying he leads us as captives because that's what the word means, basically, in Greek, as best we understand it right now. But admittedly, this is a tough passage and a whole Whole, a lot of articles have been written. I mean, there's been thousands of pages written about this verse and exactly what is Paul's image. And, you know, it's not exactly clear. It looks like that Paul sees himself and his fellow apostles, not as soldiers. Now, some interpret this as we're soldiers, but Paul sees himself and his fellow apostles, I say here, not as soldiers who share in the general's victory, but as willing, notice I'm saying, willing, willing, joyful captives who counted a privilege to be part of God's triumph as a vocal witness of the general's victorious strength. So like the NIV is interpreting it here as we're, we're like captives, you know, Paul calls himself a slave of Christ. We're willing slaves, we're willing captives of the king, and he's leading us in this procession. 
So Paul is not using it as a shaming sense, if that's what he means. As I say, some would interpret this to mean uh, we're soldiers there, and that's not exactly what the word means, but admittedly, it's difficult. So I'm not, I'm not uh, dogmatic about exactly, but the point is that Paul sees us somehow as in this great triumph of Christ. Christ is going to be triumphal, ultimately. You know, the gates of hell will not prevail against Christ and his building of the church. And we are going to be with him as part of that in some sense. Uh, the last part of the verse continues to develop the imagery with reference to a diffusion of fragrance. We know that uh, perfumes and incense were uh, sprinkled on the way, you know, uh, of the procession of the, of the procession of the triumph. Uh, so the idea is that through the apostles, God was spreading far and wide the fragrant knowledge of himself to be gained through knowing Christ. So uh, that's the idea. There is there's this knowledge of Christ that the apostles are spreading like in the triumph. This is something that uh, is a fragrant knowledge of Christ great fragrant knowledge of God that we know we come to know through Christ. And he goes on to explain this in verse 15, for we are to God, the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Uh, to the one, we are aroma that brings death to the other an aroma that brings life. So just as Paul, I say here, does in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul divides mankind into two groups, those who are saved, actually says those who are being saved, and those who are perishing. Uh, the gospel invariably divides. There is no middle ground. As faithful preachers and followers of Christ, I say here, the apostles themselves formed a sweet aroma of Christ rising up to God as a pleasing odor. You remember, if you remember the Old Testament, where it talks about these sacrifices in Leviticus, Numbers, places, these sacrifices are said to be a pleasing aroma. So God is, you know, when the Israelites obeyed God and offer these sacrifices, there's an aroma that comes up and a way of expressing God's uh, pleasure with the obedience of the one offering the sacrifice is to say they're kind of a pleasing aroma. And so Paul says here, uh, the gospel being going, going forth is in a pleasing aroma of Christ to those who are being saved and those who are perishing. Um, so the proclaimers of Christ here, he's thinking about the, himself primarily here because he's defending his ministry. Uh, he's a proclaimer of Christ and they are a sort of a life-giving perfume to those who believe the gospel, to those who hear the gospel, this is life-giving, like, you know, it's, just, it's, it's a wonderful thing, you know. You know, we, we have different reactions when we're saved, but most people are very joyous. They're, they're just really thrilled, you know. It, it creates a joy in their heart, you know, that they have not really experienced before. 
uh, sometimes it's greater than other times. Sometimes it's less, depending on the person, you know, depending on the experience and so forth and personality of the person. But uh, it's it's a, like a life-giving perfume, he says here. It's an aroma, you know, to those who are being saved. And it's like a death-dealing drug. <laughs> it's an aroma, <laughs> but it's it's a bad one to those who repudiate the gospel, you know. So the gospel divides people into two groups. It, it, it really is a bitter thing to those who are perishing, those who reject it, you know, they don't like it, uh, but it's, it's pleasant and wonderful to us who, who believe, who God enables to believe. 16b, he says, and who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, I mean, this is a great task, the gospel. Who is unequal to such, who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. I say here, given the life and death wielding character of the gospel, Paul asks an urgent question. Who is equal to such a task? The task of proclaiming a message that has such a radical effect upon the eternal destiny of the hearers. You know, the expected, the expected uh, response here is no one is really. If he depends, if they depend on their own resources, you know, who's equal to this kind of, no, well, really no one, if we're talking about in ourselves, um, the unsaved encounter Christ in the one who preaches Christ. And eternal destinies are determined by that encounter. I mean, you know, it's one thing to go to the doctor and you get a diagnosis. You know, your, your physical destiny can be determined by that person. You know, I'm sure doctors don't like to tell people, listen, you have cancer and it's terminal. That's, that's a tough job. But it's the same thing with us in a sense. You know, we're, we're giving people a message that either gives, it's an aroma to life or it's, it's, it has this, this um, it, it, it determine, determines their eternal destiny when they reject this gospel. You know, then if they continue to reject it, to never accept it, that's, that's terrible. That's an awful thing. Um, Jim Elliott, the missionary who was uh, killed, you know, famous uh, missionary, the Aka Indians there, he once prayed, uh, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road. Make me a fork, he said, that men must turn one way or another facing Christ in me. Paul goes on and says, in contrast, I say in contrast to, to those who peddle the word of God for profit, Paul appeals to the sincerity of his motives, motives and the purity of the message. Um, the principle here, you know, unlike so many, we don't peddle, you know. The principle here is, is that uh, as, as those who 
dispense the life-giving life-giving remedy for sin, preachers must avoid diluting or adulterating the medicine of life, the word of God. We don't do it for profit. We shouldn't you shouldn't do it for profit on the contrary, you know. It, we should do it sincerely with sincerity obviously. So we're talking about the character of his ministry. Paul is still defending himself. He talks about his, the sincerity of this proclamation. Now he talks, number two, about the, I say here, the ministry's best recommendation was the lives of the Corinthian converts. So he's, he's defending his ministry. And Paul says, you know, the best defense of my ministry is really your lives, your changed lives, your salvation, you know? What does that mean? What, what do you, how, do you, how do you account for that conversion experience? You know, um, He begins here in chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendations to you or from you? I say here, both of the questions in verse 1, they expect, you know, really a negative answer here. Uh, are we beginning to commend ourselves? The Greek is such as, you know, the answer expected is no. Or do we, like some people, uh, need, like some people, letters of recommendations either to you or from you? No, we don't. Behind each of the two questions in this verse stands an actual or expected charge against Paul, I say. Since he had just spoken of the distinctive role of the apostles back in 2, 14 through 16, and of his divine commission and authority, some might say, Paul, once again, you're indulging in your notorious habit of self-commendation. Uh, the second question involving letters of commendation will be answered by Paul in verse 2. Behind it lay an assertion by some people, he says, uh, so-called the many in 2.17, uh, who were making a profit out of preaching. Uh, they may have said something like this. That is, there's other people who have come to Corinth who uh, claim to be Christians, preachers and teachers and so forth. And they may have suggested something like this in, in their estimation of Paul's ministry at Corinth. Uh, since Jerusalem is the founding church of Christianity, you know, that's the mother church, Acts 2, anyone who, you know, works outside of Jerusalem must be able to give proof of his commission by letters of recommendation. I mean, Barnabas was sent up to the church at Antioch, you know, from Jerusalem. So they may be suggesting that, you know, um, you, uh, you really should have some, Paul really should have some sort of a letter of recommendation somehow saying he's a legitimate apostle. Um, they might be saying, you know, we brought you letters from Jerusalem. And notice it says, do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? 
And they may have asked the Corinthians, you know, to have supplied them with uh, such letters uh, when they visited other places, when they left Corinth. So they may, they may have put a lot of stock in these letters of recommendation. And so they may have said, you know, why should Paul be an exception to this? Um, doesn't his unconcern, Paul was unconcerned about letters of recommendation. This is obvious. He states it right here. Do we need this letters? Obviously no, but uh, they're thinking they're, they're, they're telling somebody who's telling the Corinthians, yes, he, he should have that. And we like, and we use letters from you to go other places. And so doesn't this unconcern about these letters of recommendation, you know, prove he's sort of an intruder and imposter. This may be what is behind all this discussion of these letters of recommendation. Now, we should note here that Paul is not necessarily despairing the use of letters of recommendation. Uh, their use uh, had already become established within the Christian world. Uh, you know, if you look at the various places here, Acts 15, you remember uh, after Paul's first missionary journey in Acts 13 and 14, he comes back to Antioch to give his report of his first missionary journey in Galatia. And some people <clears throat> uh, came up to the church and were saying that, uh, you know, Gentiles need to be circumcised in order to be saved. Well, that's a big problem because Paul on his first missionary journey went out and spoke the gospel established churches in the province of Galatia, and he didn't have any Gentiles circumcised. Uh, we're not under the Old Testament law, Paul would, would say to the Corinthians here. He told the Corinthians, but 1 Corinthians 9. But So um, they had a conference in Jerusalem, and they, they, you know, they met together and said, no, Gentiles don't have to keep the law and be circumcised. And uh, so they decide to write a letter, write letter uh, to those churches, to those Gentile churches and say, so we all agreed to choose some men. This is what the letter is saying. We agreed to send some men and send them to you with our dear friends, Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we're sending Judas and Tylus to confirm by word of mouth what we're writing. So the idea that was that Barnabas and Paul would go back to Galatia, you know, and he would bring, they would bring with them some people from Jerusalem, Judas and Silas, who would confirm that, you know, this is not a fake letter, this letter of recommendation of Paul. Now, ultimately, Paul split from uh, Paul and Barnabas split there at the beginning of the second missionary journey. Barnabas went to Cyprus. Paul took Silas <clears throat> and went back to Galatia. Uh, so there, you know, Paul didn't didn't refuse this letter here. Acts 18 is um, Paul established the church in Corinth in Acts 18, and then he left to go to Ephesus. And while he is gone from Corinth, 
going back to, he goes over to Ephesus, then back to Jerusalem. Uh, this is a, what happened. Apollos, remember this well-known, this man named Apollos, uh, this eloquent uh, preacher. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, remember he, he came to, uh, uh, he came to uh, Corinth and he was instructed, you know, about the gospel more fully and so forth. When Apollos came to Achaia, so he went to Corinth. So Apollos was at Ephesus and then he goes on to Corinth. When he went to Corinth, went to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was great help to those who by the grace had believed. So Apollos comes to Corinth when Paul is away he brings a letter uh, from other Christians in Ephesus that, you know, he's a legit guy. We know him and so forth. So, you know, Paul is not necessarily against, you know, the scripture is not, and Paul's not against letters of recommendation. But Paul, the point is, Paul himself did not carry any. He didn't carry any from um, Jerusalem or anything. Now, that that's a big topic. They're a big subject about that. But Remember, Paul is very strongly uh, emphasizing, you know, in places like Galatians, that his, his um, appointment to be an apostle came directly from Christ. He wants to separate himself from the apostles in Jerusalem in the sense that he is equal to them. He talks about that extensively in Galatians 1, Galatians 2, that he's not some sort of secondary apostle. No, he was directly chosen by Christ himself. And so he doesn't need any letters of recommendation from Jerusalem or anything like that. Um, I say here, Paul's opponents apparently carried letters as their credentials, probably not from the three pillars. Galatians 2.9, that's where Paul talks about his apostleship and his relationship to the Jerusalem uh, you know, to, uh, to, the, to the apostles in Jerusalem. So, uh, but maybe his opponents did get letters from, maybe they had letters from Jerusalem. We don't know who they got them from. We're, I'm just saying probably maybe not from the leaders. Their letters probably came from the Pharisaic wing of the Jerusalem church. Remember there were those. That's what happens in Acts 15. People came, people in the church at Jerusalem uh, said, and these were professing Christians who said, Gentiles have to keep the law and be circumcised. And so this is a real problem for Jews because they don't, they don't understand the transition between the Old and New Testaments. It's not perfectly laid out. Paul's the man who lays out the, <laughs> what's, what's happening there and why we're no longer under the law. These Jews think, well, we've been observing the law. Jesus observed the law. Why wouldn't we keep on observing the law and as Christians? And why wouldn't Gentiles have to? Well, that's a long discussion, but Paul spends a lot of time explaining all that, why we don't, that we're not under the law here. And I'll talk about that a little more here in a moment. So these letters may have come from people who still held such ideas in the Jerusalem church. Um, some of these people may have not been Christians. Some of them weren't because that's the problem in Galatia. Uh, after Paul established the church in Galatians, some of these kinds of people 
came to Galatia and said to the Galatians, hey, listen, Paul gave you the gospel. That's fine. We love Jesus too. But you, you Gentiles got to be circumcised, man. That's just all it is to it. And you got to keep the law. And Paul writes the letter to the Galatians saying, no, these Gentiles don't have to be. And these people who say this are, they, they, they are, they are cursed. Uh, you know, he, he, he doesn't regard them as Christians when they're preaching this kind of stuff. He's very strong against that. So uh, these people who regarded the scrupulous observance of the Mosaic law as essential for salvation and were unable to distinguish between the law-abiding conduct of the 12 and the legalistic teaching. So Paul was okay with people, you know, observing the law as long as they weren't saying, this is how I'm saved. I'm saved by keeping the law and insisting upon others keeping the law in order to be saved. So if Jews want to keep observing these legal distinctions, that's fine. But you can't say it's a basis for your salvation or it's required for salvation. That's what these people were apparently saying, and that's part of the problem here. And they're probably saying some of these like these things in Corinth. He says in verse two, you yourselves are our letter. We don't need letters of recommendation. You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You know that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So I say here, Paul now answers the last question of verse one, or do we need like some people letters of recommendation to you or from you? He insists that for him to carry commendatory letters to Corinth would be completely superfluous. The most complimentary letter he could possibly possess had already been written. Um, he says in 1 Corinthians 9, are not you the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle of others, surely I am to you. <laughs> I mean, I brought you the gospel. You believe through me. You are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. So I say here, uh, the Corinthians' very lives as men and women in Christ, the result of the grace of Christ operative in his ministry were an eloquent, eloquent letter all could read. As Paul spoke of the Corinthians' conversion everywhere he went. So Paul talked about the Corinthians, you know, and, and, and their conversion and so forth. To bring another letter would amount to a personal insult to the Corinthians. So they themselves and their salvation were Paul's testimonial, guaranteeing his apostolic status and authority. Uh, Paul's letter of recommendation, he says here, was no human document recorded in ink on papyrus, the writing material of that time, most common. Rather, it was of divine authorship. He says, written by the spirit of the living God and was indelibly described on living tablets, that is, on sensitive human hearts. Proof of Paul's genuine was 
genuineness was to be found in, not in written characters, but in human hearts. I say here, the contrast between writing on tablets of stone and on human hearts is clearly an, an allusion to the prophetic description of the new covenant under which God would write his law on human hearts. Um, remember the new covenant, Jeremiah, for instance, says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So we're contrasting that with the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant that was given at Mount Sinai and the giving of the law. I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will put my law in their hearts and write it in their minds and write it on their hearts. You know. So that's an illusion when you, when you read what Paul says here about not on tablets of stone, you know, but on human hearts when he says uh, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of the human heart. That's a clear allusion to the new covenant under which God would write his law on human hearts. The allusion paves the way for Paul's description of himself and his co-workers as ministers of the new covenant in verses four through six, and for the extended comparison and contrast between ministry under the old and new covenants in verses 7 through 18. So this is where we get into one of these sort of rabbit trails, I said, you know. Paul is defending himself. He's talking about um, his ministry and how that the Corinthians are evidence of his apostleship, their conversion experience, and so forth, their lives as converts. And in doing that, he gets this idea about, you know, we don't need this letter of recommendation written with ink or something, or something written on stone, like the commandments, the Ten Commandments. Our ministry results in something written on the heart. The law is written on the hearts. The, under the old covenant, you had this law and people had to keep it, you know, and some people were regenerate, some people weren't. Sometimes that law, that written law, became written on the heart in a sense when they were regenerate. But there was no guarantee of regeneration in the old covenant, as I'll explain. But the new covenant is different. People under the old covenant could be, there could be saved people and lost people. There were saved and lost people in the old covenant, but yet they were fully in the covenant. <clears throat> in fact, uh, you know, uh, children were born, they were in, they were part of the old covenant, circumcised the eighth day. Doesn't mean they were converted. But in the new covenant, everyone in the new covenant ministry is converted because the law, as we'll see, is written on their hearts. That's a reference to a regeneration and accepting of the gospel and so forth. So this allusion to writing <clears throat> on the hearts leads to now talking, let's talk about the new covenant versus this old covenant. So number three here, Paul proclaimed the new covenant. This is four through 18. This is a little digression. And we start off here with the source of Paul's 
competence in verses four through six. He says, such confidence we have through Christ before God. Not that we are competent in ourselves to proclaim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. In verse four, Paul says that his confidence before God in claiming that the Corinthians were a written letter by Christ, validating his apostolic credentials, came through Christ. It was not the product of some pious wish or just imagination. In verse 5, still speaking of this confidence before God, I see here, Paul denies he has any ability to form a competent judgment on the results of his own ministry or any personal right to lay claim to the results of what was in reality God's work. His qualification and source of competence for the work of the ministry was not a natural ability, but it was God's enabling. Our competence, our ability to do this work comes from God. He says in verse 6, he made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Paul further describes his confidence by saying that it is God who made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. In the last part of verse 6, Paul says, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, the letter refers back to the tablets of stone in verse 3. And is the same as that which was engraved in letters on stone in verse 7. Specifically, the Ten Commandments representing the law of Moses. Basically, what Paul is saying in this passage is that the Mosaic law was temporary and has now come to an end. The same message of passages like Galatians 3.15 through 4.7, Romans 10.4. And here in verse 6, Paul says that the letter, the Mosaic law, kills. So this new covenant replaces the old covenant here. And as we'll see, it's much superior. So remember these verses here. Uh, Christ, Paul says, is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Christ is the culmination, the end of the law, the Mosaic law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Romans 6, 14. For sin shall no longer be your master because you're not under the law, but under grace. Jews, you know, they were under the law. They're not any, under the law any longer, but they're under grace. 1 Corinthians 9, 20. Paul says to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win to the Jews. To those under the law, I became like those, like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law. So Paul says here, when I was in a Jewish context, I didn't break out my ham sandwich. You know, I didn't have, you know, I can eat ham. I can eat all the, all the ham I want to as a Christian. But, you know, Jews, 
-hmm. the Old Testament law didn't allow it. And I just don't offend them about that. I don't just go out and try to offend Jews and break the law. I'm trying to win them to Christ. So I, I don't do that. I, I live like I'm under the law, <clears throat> though not because I'm trying to be saved or anything. I'm just trying to evangelize these people. But I myself, I'm not under the law. Christians are not under the law. Galatians 3, 24. Before the coming of this faith, this Christian faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up, and the faith that was to come could be revealed. So we'll talk more about this, but we're talking about the fact that uh, uh, the the Old Testament law has come to an end. Um, and Paul says here in the, 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 that the Mosaic law kills, you know, here. Um, now, it's important to note here that Paul is not actually disparaging the Mosaic covenant or the law itself, that is the content of the law, when he talks so negative. In verses 7 through 11, uh, we'll see that he stresses that the law came in glory, and it was a glorious covenant. That old covenant was glorious. The defect, what's wrong with it then? Why does it need to be replaced? And why is the new covenant superior? The defect in the Mosaic law, that is the whole Mosaic legal system as it was set up in the Old Testament, is due to human inability to perform it. The letter kills, that is the law kills, Paul says, because it provides no power to obey. A person was born as an Israelite. They're presented with the law, but the law itself provides in itself no power to obey. It has no ability to transform people. Regeneration is necessary. One must be born again, as Christ told Nicodemus. You've got to be born again, Nicodemus, you know? And you should even know these things from the Old Testament, he says. You know, you're a teacher of Israel. And he applies the Old Testament talked about this need for a new heart and a circumcised heart. So the point is regeneration, which provides the power to obey, was not a necessary feature of the Old Covenant. It's part and parcel of the New Covenant. So people under the Old Covenant, they were born, raised in Israel. They, did, they weren't necessarily regenerated. They had to be regenerated just like us, by faith in God, believing the message of God, the truth of God. But not all were regenerated. It wasn't a necessary feature of the Old Covenant. But in the New Covenant, it's part and parcel of it. We are born again, and then we're part of this uh, new covenant. Um, notice Romans 3.20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin, Paul says here. So the letter... The law actually kills, Paul says. The letter kills. How, how does that? Is it because it's defective? Is it because it's something wrong with it? Is it because it's sinful in itself? No. The law is holy and righteous, Paul would say. But the problem here is that the law, all it does is say, hey, you know, obey this, do this. This is what you must do. But it doesn't 
provide in itself any power. So we become conscious of sin. Verse 14, Romans 4, 14, because the law brings wrath. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. So we look in the law and we see, hey, we're sinners. That's not a good thing. That, that brings God's wrath. Verse three, Galatians 3.21, Paul says, For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. Now, every religion outside of Christianity believes that the law can impart life. That's what every religion believes. It's not a Christian. That's what Islam believes. That's what even Roman Catholicism believes. It believes that, you know, by living a good life, by doing these rules, keeping this, that will bring life. And Paul says, well, if righteousness could come by that, by just obeying a set of rules, as good as you could, as able as you are, then righteousness would have come. The right, the, the right righteousness that gets you into heaven, <laughs> being right with God would have come by the law, but it can't. Um, but in the, in the new covenant, uh, the power to obey is there because God will put the law in the heart. Remember, this is the whole passage from Jeremiah. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It won't be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And that's what happened to you when you got saved. God put it into our hearts and minds to obey him, to love his word, to love him. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. See, I don't have to tell you folks, hey, listen, you need to know the Lord. <laughs> you know the Lord. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Uh, therefore, Paul will go on to say that the old covenant he'll say in verse seven, results in death. In verse nine, he'll say it results in condemnation. The new covenant ministry of the spirit is superior because the spirit writes the law on our hearts, as he said in verse three here, and it gives life, verse six, but the spirit gives life. And that's the advantage here. Well, how do we fit into this? We're not Israel. And that's a, it's a question that comes up quite a bit. Here's the view that I take. It's, it's a more common view, I think. Um, Paul does promise that there's coming a day when all Israel will be saved, you know, in the future. And he will take away their sins. <clears throat> so ultimately, this new covenant will be fulfilled eschatologically by Israel. That is, God promises us in Jeremiah, you know, he's going to write it in their hearts and so forth. All these Israelites are going to be saved. It won't be like the old covenant where some people are saved, Moses, Joshua, many other people, you know, 
in the New Testament, we encounter saints, John, I mean, John the Baptist's parents and Mary, you know, Elizabeth, and, you know, lots of them, people who are really saved under the old covenant. But there's coming a time in the future when God will fulfill this eschatologically future, you know, eschatology refers to the future, eschatos future. But we are able to participate in the salvation ex uh, part of this. Soteriology has to do with the salvation. Soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. So we participate in the salvation aspects of the new covenant. We participate by the church. The church participates in that. Now that's a more complex question. The book of Hebrews talks about this quite a bit, but it's clear that Paul will say here, listen, I'm a minister of the new covenant. Paul is ministering the new covenant. And this new covenant ministry is we're writing the law on your hearts. We're, 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 we're turning people into people who love God, you know, and the old covenant doesn't do that. <laughs> it just says, here's the law. And some people, uh, were became regenerate and some didn't, but everybody on the new covenant, they love God. They love the law. God writes it right on our hearts. He changes us. He gives us this new heart. And so that's what uh, he is saying here. And Paul will go on then now to discuss the greater glory of the new covenant. He's going to go into some more rabbit trail and explain using Moses actually as an illustration to illustrate the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And he's probably doing that because, again, Paul faces almost everywhere he goes, these Judaizers, these people who want to uh, tell Gentiles that they have some obligation still to the law. And Paul faces that. And, and, and therefore, they're questioning Paul's apostleship and his authority. Real apostles wouldn't have this view of the law that Paul has and all that. So this comes up quite a bit. But we will stop there for tonight, uh, since it's 8.03, right here, and we will, Lord willing, pick this up next week. So let me...